Greetings and welcome to Word Magazine. This is Jeff Riddle. I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. And in this episode of Word Magazine, I'm going to be doing a sermon review. I sometimes do that on this podcast channel, videocast channel. We're going to be looking at a sermon that was preached by Dr. Peter Gurry. Dr. Gurry is a professor of New Testament at the Phoenix Seminary in Phoenix, Arizona. But uh, he preached this sermon uh, just a, a Sunday before last on February the 11th of 2024. And he preached this at the Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. And the, the sermon was titled, Go and Sin No More. So it was a sermon that was on one of the uh, two most uh, substantive uh, textual variants within the New Testament, the so-called woman taken in adultery or pericope adulteri passage. The other uh, long passage that is disputed is the traditional ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20. So he came in as a guest preacher, was invited in as a guest preacher to this church, which I assume is probably doing a series through the Gospel of John, and the pastor decided, you know, this is a disputed text. I need to bring in an expert uh, to be able to teach this passage. I don't know if he didn't feel qualified to teach on it. He didn't want to make the call on uh, whether this passage is authoritative or not. So he brings in Guri, the expert, uh, to address this passage. And Guri is going to explain to the congregation uh, listening to this sermon that this passage indeed is not part of the Gospel of John. It is spurious. It's not original. It's not authentic. But he will suggest it can be redeemed as a sort of true story about Jesus that can serve as an illustration of some of his other teachings. And this, in some ways, is kind of a, a typical uh, response of many who are evangelicals uh, like Peter Gurry, who have embraced the modern critical text and modern translations based upon it. So I have skimmed through part of this sermon. It's about a 50-minute sermon and didn't listen to all of it, but listened to some of it. So in this review, I'm going to be listening to it fresh along with you, and I'm going to be offering some extempore comments about it. I have uh, in front of me uh, just a, a couple of, of notes, some things I jotted down. I've got my Bible, and I've got it open to John uh, 7, 53 through 8, 11. And uh, I also have this little booklet uh, that um, was published last year by the Trinitarian Bible Society, which I wrote. Um, it's a little booklet that's titled, Why John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is in the Bible. And actually... Um, um, responded to uh, Peter Gurry's uh, Twitter slash X, uh, where I found out about this sermon when he posted a uh, made a post about it, and I posted back a link uh, to uh, my um, booklet or article, why John seven fifty three through eight eleven is in the Bible, and this is available uh, in a PDF form for free online. Uh, you can order hard copies like this one to put on an info desk at your church or a book table at your church. But if you just want to read it, you can just Google um, why John 7, 53 through 811 is in the Bible, Trinitarian Bible Society, 
and you'll have a link uh, to a um, a PDF. So I'm gonna I'm gonna use this. I think in the review, I'm, I've I've went through and marked a few places that I think I'm gonna want to read um, that will I think offer a different perspective from the one that's going to be presented by Peter Gurry. He's going to say this thing is spurious. I'm going to defend it and say that the, the pastor, the preacher, can confidently uh, preach from this text. So without any further ado, let's see if we can uh, pull up the sermon and let's see if we can listen to it. Um, again, it's 56 minutes in length. Um, this is the, the website here for the Trinity Bible Church and the audio for the sermon. Um, I don't think we're going to uh, get through the entire sermon, um, particularly I uh, when he comes to some applications at the end. I just mainly want to listen to his rationale uh, for why this should not be received as the word of God. And uh, here, just on the, the sermon before the audio, the notes here, Peter Gurry, John 7, 53 through 811, despite its traditional inclusion in English Bibles, the manuscript evidence leads us to believe that John 7, 53 through 811 is not part of John's original gospel, but it serves as a great illustration of what we find true about Jesus elsewhere. So again, that's the big thesis. This is not really scripture, but it is uh, simply an illustration uh, that, that we can uh, use. So let's go ahead and get started, and we'll stop and start as we go along. Here is Peter Gurry with his sermon, February 11, 2024, Go and Sin No More you to come in and preach on the footnotes in the Bible. I don't know if that's a great honor or if that's an indication of what your preaching is normally like. But either way, I'm glad to be with you this morning. So he makes a little joke here about, I don't know what it says, that I've been asked to come in and preach on the footnotes in your Bible. And there is really, though, a serious uh, undertone in that because it is confusing for many people in the pew when there are these extensive footnotes explaining why a passage isn't uh, in the earliest and best manuscripts, but it appears there on the pages of their Bible. Maybe even if it's put in brackets, uh, they assume it's part of Scripture, but now an expert is going to come in and tell them, no, 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 this is not part of the Word of God. To tackle what can be a difficult topic, and I hope this morning I can say something constructive and helpful about it with you. If you would turn in your Bible to John chapter 8, if you're reading from the Black Pew Bible in front of you, I've got a copy of that. It's on page 894. And what I'd like to do with you is read the text together with you, and then I'll explain what we're going to do with it this morning. All right. So John chapter 8, it technically starts in the very end of John chapter 7, but your ESV has put the last verse of chapter 7 together with the beginning of chapter 8. It says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, 
uh, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, that's the text in your Bible this morning. Okay, so he reads the passage. This is from the English Standard Version, um, where it's placed there in, in the, uh, the, the double uh, um, uh, brackets, indicating that it's actually not part of the Word of God. But he's read this before the congregation. I mean, what does a pastor normally do before he preaches? He reads the text of Scripture. And there's, there's sort of a question that arises here from the beginning. If you do not believe this is the Word of God, if you do not believe that this is the God-breathed, inspired Word of God, uh, what profit is it to read it publicly? And this is a question we're going to come to later. Um, if you don't believe this is the Word of God, I would have a lot more respect for evangelicals who have uh, embraced the modern texts and modern translations if they honestly would just take these passages out of their Bibles. But why do they not do that? Because they know that it would cause upset among the people of God. And actually, this whole message is about trying to soothe and calm down any upset that might arise from some who might be bothered by essentially the removal of this text uh, from the Bible. So uh, let's continue. But if you were looking at it closely, you'll notice, as Malachi already, already said at the beginning, there are two brackets right before this passage, aren't they? And two brackets at the end, and there's an, even a note in front of it, and there's an even longer footnote at the bottom of your page. So what I want to do with you this morning as we think about what's going on here is I want to consider why these verses are in your Bible. Then I want to, want to explain to you why they have this particular note and, and, and explain it a bit more, more in detail for you. And then lastly, I don't just want to leave us there. I don't want to just give a kind of a lecture this morning to you all. What I'd like us to do is think about some of the things in this passage that, that are completely in line with what the rest of the Scripture teaches us about Jesus and what he came to be and to do for us. All right, so that's what I want to do. This passage, of course, is one of the most famous in the Bible, isn't it? So, again, he's going to, basically in this sermon, he's going to give a lecture on the footnotes of the ESV, and then he's going to bring some, some, I guess, teaching about what in this is supposedly consistent with the rest of the Bible, even if it is spurious. Um, and again, you you wonder what what are ordinary Christians in the pew thinking when from the pulpit they're told that part of the content of their Bible isn't really part of the Bible. But if you have this uh, gnosis, this knowledge, you're able to discern what is really the Bible and what isn't the Bible. And these uh, these scholars who have added these footnotes, these editors, 
uh, will let you in on what the Bible really is and what it is not. People love this, this passage. All right, so if you would, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump in. Father in heaven, we... I'm going to skip past the prayer a little bit here if I can. What's going on there? Then as we think together about what we can still learn about Jesus from it, be with us and guide us in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. All right. So like said, what, what I want to do is think together with you uh, first about why are these verses in your Bible? Why do they have this note? And then think together about some of the things that they reflect that's true from the rest of Scripture. All right. Firstly, by way of background, all right, we need to say two things. The first thing we need to say by way of sort of background to set up the issue is that I don't know any Christian denomination or branch of Christianity that that um, that believes that God inspired the scribes who had to copy the Bible by hand. Now, already I've said some things that some of you are going, what are you talking about? Let me pause here. So he says he doesn't know any churches or anyone who believes that the scribes who copied, hand copied the scriptures were inspired. My question is, why do you even raise this then? If this is uh, the, the textbook definition uh, of a, a straw man argument. Uh, if no one out there says, thinks that the scribes uh, inerrantly transmitted um, through their copying the Bible, why raise this? And I think he is raising it because he wants to suggest that perhaps there are people out there, people who believe in the integrity and the authority of Scripture, and who uh, would defend the traditional text, who would somehow argue that the scribes uh, never uh, made mistakes in copying, that we don't believe in textual variants. Obviously, we believe uh, that there were textual variants. Look at the manuscripts, and you see that there were textual variants. He's right. No one believes that the scribes inerrantly copied the scriptures during the handwritten transmission process before the invention of printing. But we do believe that God preserved his word and kept it pure in all ages, even when there were circumstances when scribes did not accurately copy and made mistakes in the copying. So, but he wants to tie this in because he wants to introduce into the mind of the congregation here that there were scribes who made errors. And apparently, not just errors of omission, but also major errors of addition. It wasn't just a slip of the pen that would have put 12 verses into the Gospel of John that were not originally there. There had to be a scribe uh, who was motivated by a desire to change the gospel if John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is not original. And we have to assume that God apparently allowed that, permitted it, so that for the longest period of church history and among most Christians in most places all over the world, they had a Bible that was wrong, that had error in it that had an, a, 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 an addition to it that was spurious that many, most actually confusedly thought was part of the word of God. But he's, again, he's, he's anticipating his argument here 
that John 7, 53 through 8, 11 can be dismissed as scripture because it's supposedly a kind of scribal error. And the scribes were not uh, inerrant in the transmission process, uh, something that no one uh, suggests. But uh, from a, a believing Bible perspective, we also don't suggest that God would allow spurious additions to be uh, foisted upon the scriptures and so contaminate and corrupt them. But uh, let's continue. Why are we talking about scribes? Well, as you may know, not everybody has read the Bible in a neat, handy printed Bible like you can do this morning, right? Until the invention of the printing press, if people wanted a copy of the Bible, they had to copy it by hand, right? And Christians believe, and you... He has this speaking style um, where he's, I guess it's probably from classroom lecturing where he's constantly asking the audience, right, right, right. Okay, we get it. Um, let, let's, let's see. You believe at this church that God inspired the authors of the Bible. God inspired the author of the Gospel of John. John, right? Inspired Matthew and Mark and Luke and Paul and Moses. But I don't know any Christian... Well, God used penmen. Um, they were moved along by the Holy Spirit, as uh, Peter puts it. But what's inspired are, are, are the scriptures, the holy and sacred writings themselves. They are what is theonoustos, God-breathed. Um, the penmen are not theonoustos. The scriptures are theonoustos, uh, I would say. But... Of course, obviously, we would agree. Yes, um, it, it's it's the, the the Bible was immediately inspired in the original Hebrew and Greek, as it puts it in uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter one and paragraph eight. Denomination that believes or teaches that God inspired the scribes who copied their work. Are you with me? In other words, are you with me? Um, uh, right. Of course, we don't believe the scribes were inspired. Uh, we believe the scriptures are God-breathed. The scriptures are inspired, and God used the holy men of old, the prophets and apostles and sages, and they were moved along by the Holy Spirit uh, to, to inscripturate, to write down the revelation uh, that was uh, given uh, by God. So, yes. Right at the beginning, we need to make an important distinction theologically between what God did through the authors of Scripture and what He did through the scribes who had to copy them, you might think of you might think of it differently. Do you believe that God has inspired the translators of your Bible? I'm sure we would all say no, wouldn't we? We don't think that the translators of our Bible are inspired and kept from making any kind of error, do we? I think the better way to put it would be, as in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter one, paragraph eight that the Bible is immediately inspired in the original Hebrew and Greek, and that translations are useful to the degree that they reflect the immediately inspired originals. So no, uh, we don't believe that the translators were inspired. Scripture is inspired. This really isn't a question about inspiration. Really, it's a question about preservation. Because again, the, the problem, the theological problem with arguing that John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is spurious is what you're saying is 
God did not preserve his word and that the scriptures were grossly contaminated by the addition of 12 verses that are not God-breathed, that are not inspired. So uh, let's continue. We wouldn't say that. And the same way we wouldn't say that God did that for the scribes either. All right, so that's the first important thing we need to keep in mind is that we believe that God inspired the authors and he protected them from error in what they wrote. But he did not do the same thing for scribes all the time. All right. As we'll see. Who says that? He, I think scribes still did a pretty good job copying our Bible. We'll get into that. Okay. But right away, we just need to. Scribes did a pretty good job, except for, you know, every once in a while, 12 spurious verses being added. Sort of think theologically for a second and realize that God has not made a promise to, to um, keep scribes from making mistakes. The second way of. Well, he did make a promise, though, to preserve his word. Uh, we can look at places like Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, uh, where he promised that not one jot or tittle uh, would uh, be corrupted uh, till um, the end of the ages. So, um, so, yeah, he did make promises about the preservation of Scripture, though he made no promises that there that the the uh, the scribes were going to uh, be inspired or uh, infallibly, inerrantly copy every single manuscript uh, that was copied. Yes, there are textual variants, but that doesn't undermine either the inspiration or the preservation of Scripture. By way of background thing we need to say is that you need to know the originals of your Bible are lost. We don't have them. Right? So we don't have the copy that John wrote of his gospel. We don't have the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome and sent to them. This is not surprising at all, historically speaking. We don't have pretty much any original from any ancient work, any ancient writing. Right? We don't have the original of grit. Agreed. We don't have the autographs. We do not have the original uh, uh, manuscript that came from the pen of Matthew or from Paul. But where we would differ... Uh, who hold to the Reformation text, is that we would believe in preservation. And so we believe the faithful copies, when we have the faithful copies, we have the originals, we have the autographs. Whereas those who hold to modern textual criticism believe not only have the original manuscripts uh, upon which Matthew and, and Paul wrote, not only do we not have those, but we also do not have the scriptures uh, but they must. We must attempt to reconstruct them to get a loose approximation of what they might be. The great histories that the Greeks wrote, right, or the great plays that they wrote, or uh, things like the Iliad and the Odyssey. We don't have the originals of those either, right? They were written on things like papyrus and parchment, and these are materials that wear out over time, and so they have not survived. And the result is that the surviving copies that we have of, have of the Bible have differences between them. That's why you have footnotes in your Bible like this one here, okay? Scribes are not perfect. Copying by hand is hard. As I always say, if you don't believe me, try it, right? You go home today and— Right. You know, I was thinking about that whole—this this rhetoric of right, right? Um, not only is it sort of asking the audience, do you understand me, but also it's a subtle— um, it's a subtle affirmation that you should believe what I'm saying is right. And 
I think people say this when they realize that there's a there's a good chance that people in the audience with the congregation in this case might not believe that they're right. And I and this is where I think many times even people who are these types of mainline evangelicals, mainstream evangelicals who have embraced the modern critical text, I think that they instinctively understand that the people in the pew will be critical or skeptical when someone stands behind the pulpit, the sacred desk, and tells them that there are corruptions in the scriptures. And so they need to keep repeating right, 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 um, lest someone should think that what they're conveying is wrong, wrong, wrong. And you copy out John's gospel by hand and see how you do, <laughs> right? There's a saying that scribes often wrote in their manuscripts when they got to the end. And it's a little saying, it goes like this. It says, as a traveler rejoices to see his home country at the end of a long journey, so the scribe rejoices to see the end of a book. Right? It's hard work. It's hard work to copy by hand. And God did not. No one contests that. Again, no one contests that the reality of textual variance, but that doesn't undermine either the inspiration or preservation of Scripture. Not work the miracle of protecting every last scribe from making mistakes. So as a result, our surviving copies of the Bible sometimes have differences. And that's why I'm here with you this morning. All right. That's why Malachi is not up here preaching this. But this isn't a matter of a slight misspelling, a transposition of two letters or even two words. We're dealing with a scenario where, where, where we're being told 12 verses have been added. And I sort of cut him off here. He's saying, this is why I'm up here today and not Malachi, your pastor. Your pastor felt like, you know, he needed to bring the relief pitcher in off the from the um, bullpen uh, because I, I, I'm the expert. I've I've come in to uh, to take care of this this difficult passage because your pastor apparently didn't feel equipped to do it. Um, and so, uh, anyways, this is why uh, the reliever has been brought in. Okay, we can blame the scribes for me being here. All right, so let's start then by thinking this question. Okay, why is this passage in your Bible? You've already probably gotten a hint. The reason he, he must be talking about scribes because there's some kind of scribal difference here. And as you can read the note at the beginning of the passage, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. So why then is it in your Bible at all, you might ask? Well, let's start there. The simple reason why it's in your Bible at all is because it's been in the English Bible for a long, long time. Okay, so why is it in your Bible? And he said, the reason he says is because it's, it's been in your English Bible a long, long time. And I find this part of the rhetoric interesting, too. Uh, we hear this from a lot of evangelicals. Obviously, in an English-speaking context, we're going to think about our English translations of the Bible. But I would say the issue, the reason it's in our Bibles is not merely because it's been part of the English Bible translation tradition for a long, long time. That is true. We didn't have Protestant English Bibles that excluded uh, this passage until the late 19th century. This is a novelty. It's only been the last 150 years 
that any Protestant would have countenanced the idea of their copy of the Gospel of John not including the woman taken in adultery. But it's really not that. It's really the question of what is the Bible? And the reason that this passage is in the Bible is not merely because it's in the English Bible tradition. It's because it is in the received text. It's in the text that was acknowledged to be the Word of God, uh, I think, throughout church history, and in particular during the time of the Protestant Reformation. And so it's not just in the English Bible translation tradition. It's in the Protestant Bible translation tradition. It's there in the French Bibles and the Dutch Bibles and the Hungarian Bibles and the Italian Bibles of the Protestant era. Um, this is not then just an English Bible thing. And I think this is this is especially thrown out because there has been this um, uh, there there has been this um, propaganda, I hate to call it that, but I'll call it that, this propaganda against the authorized version, against the King James Version. And I think many people who oppose uh, the traditional text like to fall back on, this is just an English Bible thing, rather than deal with, this is a received text thing. So anyways, uh, let's let's keep an ear out for that. Uh, that rhetoric as we continue. In fact, it's been in the English Bible since the very first complete English Bible ever. So you've heard of it. It's called the Wycliffe Bible, which was translated in the 14th century. If you were to go all the way back to that Bible, it would be difficult to read. Okay, it's like if you're familiar with something like Beowulf or the Canterbury Tales, it's in that style of English. Okay, so it's hard to read. Well, the Wycliffe Bible was translated from Latin. Uh, but how did it come into the Latin tradition? We got to go back to Jerome. Why did Jerome include the Pericope Adulteri? Because it was in the Greek uh, tradition that uh, he was making the translation from, and it was the received text of the church from the earliest uh, ages. But when John Wycliffe and his followers translated the Bible, this passage was in their manuscripts, and so they translated it into English. And then later in the 16th century, when William Tyndale came along and became the first person ever to translate the New Testament from the original Greek, Wycliffe and his followers had translated it from Latin. Tyndale translated it from Greek. It was also in his copies of the Bible that he had. So when he translated it in English, he naturally translated this passage. All right. Right. So it's not an English issue. It's a Bible issue. So both these famous translations include this passage because it was in their sources. And by the time you get to something like the very famous King James Bible that was produced in 1611, all English Bibles up to that point included this passage in them. All Protestant Bibles in all the languages of Europe included. So before we get any further, I want to say that's the first, and I would suggest the most important reason why this passage is still in your Bible today is because it's been part of the English Bible for a very, very long time so it's there simply by virtue of historical momentum um can we countenance the possibility that it's there because christians have recognized it as the word of god that there's something spiritual that has gone on that the sheep uh, have heard the voice of their shepherd uh in this passage and it has been 
received, recognized, and acknowledged as inspired and canonical uh, throughout the longest period of church history in most places in church history. This has been acknowledged and received as the word of God. And that's a that's a much um that's a much larger thing to try to do away with. And so we can understand why we want to shuffle off the reason to uh, oh, this is just part of the English Bible translation tradition. It's because it's in the King James Version or something like that. And Bible translators, you should know, typically don't like to make dramatic changes to the Bible if they don't have to. And here, translators come along to this passage. Like, Except that modern translators uh, are making a lot of major changes to the Bible. And uh, and is it because they feel that they have to? Um, why do they have to? Go. We could do two things. We could take it completely out of people's Bibles. Or we could just put a footnote in there. <laughs> well, which one is less intrusive? Obviously, it's much less intrusive to put some brackets around it and a footnote, right? And so translators... Right, right. Is So is it just a stylistic thing? And again, um, let's be honest about this. If you think this is not the word of God, I will have a lot more respect for you if you will rip it out of your Bible. Rip that passage out. Um, you know, take the Band-Aid away and, and, and deal with the pain. The reason it's kept in there is probably uh, because of a money issue, because they know that Bibles that did not have this would not sell, because God's people recognize this as the Word of God. And there would be, there would be a pushback. Um, there, would be, um, there would be feedback from the people of God, if there was an effort to remove this. And again, it seems to me actually to be somewhat duplicitous to just put brackets and notes about it. If you really believe this is not part of the word of God, then go ahead and take it out. Um, don't include it in there with, with brackets and footnotes if you don't believe uh, that it is the word of God. Much prefer to do that. It's much less intrusive way to handle it, all right? So that's why it's like that in your Bible. You might might be interested to know the first Bible to ever have a footnote in English about this was published in 1881, known as the Revised Version. So not till 1881 was there a Protestant Bible that, uh, that included brackets and footnotes about this passage. Otherwise, it has been received as the word of God. That's kind of interesting because, of course, the 1881 English Revised Version uh, had Westcott and Hort uh, on the translation committee uh, who had worked on uh, their um, modern critical edition of the Greek New Testament. They had shared copies, uh, advanced copies of it. And it's funny because I, I recently heard uh, Gurry speaking on Mark Ward's uh, Textual Confidence Collective, in which he was trying to say, oh, they, Westcott and Hort really didn't have that big of a, uh, an influence upon um, the English Revised Version. They didn't slavishly follow it. Well, look at Westcott and Hort's 1881 Greek New Testament and see what they did with John 753 through 811. They take it out of the text proper. They put it at the end of the Gospel of John. And of course, they had an influence upon the English Revised Version. 
And this was just the beginning of an avalanche of modern Bible translations that began to challenge the authenticity of this passage. Um, so, uh, yes, this, has been, this is a novelty. This is something new in the history of Protestant Christianity to have Bibles uh, that cast doubts upon the authenticity of John 7, 53 through 8, 11. This is the first, at least, mainstream English Bible to mark the text in this way. And what you need to know that had happened in the intervening period between, say, something like 1611 with the King James Bible, okay, and 1881 with the Revised Version, is that scholars discovered a lot more copies of the New Testament. Okay, okay now he's going to say the reason this happened, okay, right, okay, is that there have been, there was this great, uh, outbursts of discovery of manuscripts. And so it was merely these people following the facts and the evidence. But again, we can challenge this. How do you know what people in past generations had access to? You only know what you have access to in this generation. Um, people uh, over the largest uh extent of church history in most places have received this as the word of God. And many of those people in the earlier generations, think about uh, the, the time of, say, Jerome, um, they had access to many manuscripts and they received John 7, 53 through 8, 11 as the word of God. And so uh, um, we, it's a myth to think that we have access to more now than was had in previous generations. Now, did, did some uh, manuscript discoveries influence the, the modern critical text and its campaign to remove John 7, 53 through 811? Of course it did. Two manuscripts in particular, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, those are the twin darlings of uh, the text critics of the 19th century, Westcott and Hort. And so it's the fact that they omit John 7, 53 through 8, 11, that had the biggest influence upon it, the attempt to remove it from uh, the Greek, uh, critical Greek text, and also to remove it from the Protestant translation tradition, including translations in English. Okay, so I'm going to have Jonah put a slide up here now to give you some sense of how dramatic the increase in our knowledge was between those two points in history. Okay, well, we can't see the, the slide um, but again, I would question the relevance of this data. Tyndale's Bible, if you can see it up there on the on your left, okay, published in 1526, was informed by only about a dozen Greek manuscripts. Well, that I, I think that is um, inaccurate because that assumes that Tyndale was doing attempting to do modern eclectic textual criticism. Actually, most likely, he was depending upon the printed editions of Erasmus. And then there's a question of what access, what manuscripts did Erasmus have access to? Um, so it's not really a question of how many manuscripts did Tyndale have access to. He was making use of a printed edition, but it's how many manuscripts did Erasmus have access to? And you'll hear a variety of opinions on that. In the end, I think we, we could say we don't know. He traveled all over Europe. Um, he had access to many manuscripts. What we know is what, in the end, 
uh, he determined would be incorporated into his printed editions. And then those printed editions uh, were uh, received by Protestant scholars like, like Stephanus and Beza, and uh, they edited uh, those, and they, they began to reflect a consensus on what the, what the Protestant text, what the Reformation text of the Bible is. So it's not a matter of Tyndale had a lot less information than we have today. It's really comparing apples and oranges. We could say that Tyndale had a lot more things on his side. He was living in the pre-Enlightenment era. Uh, he was still living in the age of faith. And we don't have scholars like that today. Um, the, the modern scholars of the 19th century are persons influenced by uh, all the, the, the corrosive um, um, patterns and ways of thinking of the Enlightenment. And, uh, and, and they were thinking uh, of things in a, uh, a critical way, whereas uh, uh, Tyndale, Erasmus, those men were thinking in a pre-critical manner. And there are many ways in which the pre-critical perspective is to be preferred. Now remember, he's the first person ever to translate the New Testament from Greek, okay? So people are just starting to do this. So he used what he had available, and the addition of the Greek New Testament that he had available was only based on about a dozen manuscripts. By the year 1707, there was another edition of the Greek New Testament that was informed by about a hundred manuscripts, okay? If you fast forward to 2001, okay, when your ESV was published, scholars had cataloged 30 times that number of manuscripts. You see that? Okay, just because they had cataloged them at that time doesn't mean that men in past generations did not have access to perhaps even more manuscripts, just that they were not cataloged in a way that they are cataloged in a contemporary uh, setting. 30 times. So if you're wondering why the change between, say, Tyndale's time or the King James and the ESV, the very simple answer is we have discovered and studied and learned about a lot more evidence for the Bible. Um, I honestly think that that is way too simplistic an explanation of why we had the rise of modern critical texts. It's not merely a matter of supposedly more empir empirical evidence. First of all, we don't know uh, the, the, to the degree of the empirical evidence that men of the pre-critical generation, what they had access to. Um, secondly, though, I think that actually the, the modern critical text was more influenced not by this empirical data of number of manuscripts they had, but it was influenced by the rise of modern historical criticism and by things like source criticism and redaction criticism and also a, a whole uh, theory of the history of Christianity that downplayed a high Christology of early Christianity and suggested that that was only a much later development. That influenced many scholars uh, when they looked at the, the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament to want to take out or see a secondary things, uh, parts of the scripture that reflected a high Christology. So it wasn't just manuscript discoveries. It was the whole rise of 
the Enlightenment influenced modern historical critical method. It's far too simplistic to say it was just a matter of they had more manuscripts and somehow they were objectively studying these. They were their thoughts about these manuscripts were shaped uh, by their uh, theological presuppositions. Now, let me stop and pause it just for a second and say something that I think is helpful. Sometimes you may encounter people who think that because the, something like the King James Bible is older than your ESV, you might think, well, it's closer to the sources. It's closer to the time of writing. It must actually be better, right? Certainly there are plenty of things that are older and are better, right? Okay? I'm a child of the 90s. I think that's when our culture peaked, right? The best music, the best TV shows, the best clothing. Am I right? Can I get some amens from some people? Okay, okay. We're on the same page then this morning. Very good, okay? You might think older is always better, right? But when it comes to Bible translations, actually, because we have discovered so many more manuscripts over time, your Bible today is actually far better informed by manuscript evidence than what the King James was informed by. Can you tell me how many manuscripts the King James Version translators had access to? My guess is you cannot. Um, it's it's that's a That's a fact that no one knows. Um, you're making an assumption. And also, um, I mean, the, we're not talking about uh, pop culture of the 90s versus pop culture 30 years later. We're talking about the, 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 the men of the Protestant and the Protestant Orthodox era who had a level of godliness, who had an expertise in biblical languages, so yes, in many ways, they were at an advantageous, in an advantageous position and situation. And actually in the providence of God, uh, they were there like Queen Esther for such a time as this uh, to be used to recognize the authentic scripture, to, uh, to preach from it, to teach from it, uh, to Acknowledge this as the text that would be the basis for the great Protestant translations of that of that wonderful time of revival and renewal. And so we're not talking about pop culture. Do you like 80s music and 90s music? We're talking about um, a, a fundamentally um, um, significant time in the history of Christianity. And yes, I would prefer a Bible that was shaped more by the principles and by the persons of the Reformation era than by the principles and the persons of a postmodern era in which we are now living. See, King James is still a wonderful translation. It was a great translation, especially for its time. But we've learned a lot more since then. All right. Well, it's, it's good, not just for its time. It, it has a continuing usefulness. It's not outdated and the most significant uh thing about its usefulness is that it's based on the immediately inspired uh, hebrew and greek originals so by 1881 the increase in manuscripts had convinced many scholars and translators that this particular story famous as it was was not original to john's gospel and so from that point on most major english bibles note the problem in one way or another okay so right it's only been 150 years this is an extremely novel idea that John 7, 53 through 8, 11 should not be part of our Bibles. 
And this, I think, is a, a good reason why you should use a translation that is based on the traditional text that does not put uh, this passage in brackets and doesn't add footnote, footnotes, which raise doubts about its authenticity. Right. They'll put brackets around right? it. Some will italicize it. Almost all will have some kind of footnote. So if Jonah goes to the next slide here, you can see here's the footnote, not the note above it, but the actual note way down in tiny little print in your Bible. Here's what your ESV footnote says. It says, some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Which is some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. You know, these footnotes, and he's going to talk with more specificity about the numbers, and um, I do appreciate that, that he's going to share about that. But think about the average person who reads that. Um, what does the term some mean? Some early manuscripts do not include it. And I think probably for most people in the pew, does that mean 10? Does it mean 100? Does it mean 1,000? Um, there's, there's absolutely no, no way to interpret the scale. And given that, that, that footnotes like this can be very confusing, I think, for the average uh, layman, for the average reader uh, of the Bible. And there's a good argument for not having footnotes like this. If you think it's not original, like I said, just take it out of the text. Um, and, and, and then, you know, uh, be able to deal with the backlash you'll get from the marketing of that Bible. And again, I think that's the main reason why they keep it in there. Um, they realize there might be a backlash, but they want to still uh, um, cast doubt upon its authenticity among readers is our story, right? Story of the woman caught in adultery. And then it says others add the passage here or after chapter 7, verse 36, or after chapter 21, verse 25, that's the very end of John's gospel, okay? Or after Luke 21, 38, with variations in the text, all right? This is an, the ESV footnote, again, is extremely misleading. And I think he's going to talk a little bit more about this, but it, 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 it plants in the mind of the reader that somehow John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is a spurious edition and it's a so-called floating tradition. And um, I address this in uh, my little booklet um, towards the end of uh, the booklet on page 11. I have a little discussion uh, titled Refuting Two wrong-headed suggestions. And um, the first uh, one of these two wrong-headed suggestions I wrote um, was this one about the floating tradition. It says, it is off I wrote, it is often suggested that the Pericope Adulteri is a floating tradition, sometimes dropped into its place after John 7.52, but at other times inserted in other places in John or even in the Gospel of Luke. And I have a footnote there, uh, page uh, footnote number 33, where I wrote, Daniel B. Wallace, for example, uh, asserts that this account has all the earmarks of a pericope that was looking for a home. It took up permanent, permanent residence in the ninth century in the middle of the fourth Gospels. Uh, see Daniel B. Wallace, my favorite passage that's not in the Bible. Um, 
James R. White has claimed, quote, such moving about by a body of text is plain evidence of its later origin in his book, The King James Version Only Controversy. Um, so is it right that this John 7, 53 through 811 is just a floating tradition? I continue again, reading from my little booklet on page 11. The ESV translation, for example, offers a misleading footnote on the passage which states, quote, some manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Others add the passage here or after uh, John 7, 36 or after John 21, 25 or after Luke 21, 38 with variations in the text, end quote. And this is me again commenting on the ESV footnote, which Gurry has just talked about. The thing one should understand, however, is that there are actually very few examples of manuscripts which contain the PA being anywhere other than its traditional location at John 7, 53 through 811. What is more, the handful of manuscripts that displace the Pericope Adulteri are all late in date. Bruce M. Metzger, for example, cites only one late manuscript, Minuscule 225, dated to the early 12th century, in which the Pericope Adulteri occurs after John 736. These dislocations likely resulted from the efforts previously discussed above to suppress the passage. I continue my article, this is now page 12. This question of the PA's original location in John was examined by Chris Keith in his 2009 article, which was titled The Initial Location of the Pericope Adulteri in Fourfold Tradition. Keith concluded, there is no extant evidence that the Pericope Adulteri was read in a canonical gospel text in any location other than John 753 through 811 until the late 9th or 10th century. The woman taken in adultery was not, therefore, a floating tradition in early Christianity. And I wish we would just put this myth of the Pericope Adulteri being a floating tradition to rest. The ESV translators should change that footnote. It is inaccurate. It is misleading. And uh, if anyone has questions about it, I would point you in the direction of this article by Chris Keith. Chris Keith is not a traditional text supporter. Uh, he teaches in the, the UK. And his uh, article, The Initial Location of the Pericope Adultri and Fourfold Tradition, appeared in the journal Novum Testamentum, uh, volume 51, 2009, pages 1 through 23. Let's put to rest this crazy um, story. And why was it, why is it there in the ESV? Because the editors want wanted intentionally uh, to cast doubts on the authenticity of the passage. Um, so anyways, let's let's put that um, let's put that to rest and let's go back now to the sermon. He's going to talk some more about it, but uh, um, clearly I've, I've laid my cards on the table. Now, that's in some ways not very much information, is it? Agreed. What I'd like to do with our next section here is just explain that a little bit with some more detail, okay? As I've already suggested, when it comes to the Gospel of John, we are blessed with an overwhelming abundance of copies of it today in Greek, okay? Today, okay. Today, scholars have cataloged nearly 3,000 of them. 
That's more than any scholar can study in a lifetime. Way more. And that's an that's an interesting statement he just made there. Three thousand. There are three thousand manuscripts he said that include the Gospel of John. Again, not all those are, are all the Gospel of John. So as he'll point out here in a moment, some of them are so-called lectionaries. But um, no one could study them in a lifetime. And friends, what that tells us is that the eclectic method is always going to in, going to fail because it is impossible, humanly speaking, to do an empirical study of the extant manuscript evidence. We can't rely on that. Instead, we have to rely on the providential preservation of God's word. And that's why we should hold to what has been received, uh, what was received in the Reformation, Reformation era, and not... Uh, uh, try to grasp the ever-elusive modern critical text and ever-changing modern critical text, which shifts with every wind of doctrine uh, and with every new scholar and new method and new algorithm that comes around. To give you some perspective of just how many that is, if you were to compare John's gospel to something of about the same time, like maybe you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas. Anybody heard about the Gospel of Thomas? You'll hear it in the news sometimes. The Gospel of Thomas is one of these non-canonical Gospels, okay? If we had more time, I'd explain it to you, but it's quite different from John's Gospel. If you read it, you would understand immediately why it's not in your Bible. Trust me, okay? It does not end with Jesus dying on the cross and rising. Trust me. You don't have to read the Gospel of Thomas. Just trust me. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I think the people probably in the church could read the Gospel of Thomas and could understand that it's not a canonical gospel. And uh, anyways, so he's going to he's going to say, you know, we've 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 only got, you know, a, a couple of, of, of manuscripts that have any reference to the Gospel of Thomas. But we have all these manuscripts in the New Testament. But again, you just told us a few moments ago that there are so many that no person could possibly examine and master them all. So, um, anyways, let's continue. The dead. As far as early Christians were concerned, it's not really a gospel at all. Okay? But, but all that to say, if you think about the Gospel of Thomas, we have a total of four copies of the Gospel of Thomas. Only three of them are in the original language, Greek, that it was written in. And all three of those are very fragmentary. We do not have a single complete copy of the Gospel of Thomas in the original language. Are you with me? How many do we have of the Gospel of John in its original language? Answer: three thousand. It's a bit misleading, though, because a lot of the a lot of those copies we have the Gospel of John are very fragmentary. Something like Papyrus fifty two, which it just has a couple of verses on a piece of parchment, and also um, we don't have a lot of very early manuscripts of many places in the Gospels, including the Gospel of John. And so uh, this, this argument here is a little bit misleading. Um, as long as you have one manuscript that has the correct reading, then you will have a witness to the authentic text, will you not? I mean, I, I agree, obviously, we have more extant evidence for the Gospels, the canonical Gospels, than we do for the Gospel of Thomas. But I'm not sure that that's always the determinative argument for why the canonical gospels are authoritative and the gospel of Thomas isn't. The reason the canonical gospels are authoritative and the gospel of Thomas isn't is because of its content. Because when you read the gospel of Thomas, 
you recognize this is not God-breathed scripture. Whereas when you read the canonical gospels, you recognize that you are hearing within this the voice of God. 3,000, right? So needless to say, the Gospel of John is in a league of its own <laughs> when compared to something like the Gospel of Thomas, all right? Now, when we think about those 3,000 manuscripts, there are two main types. Now, this is as technical as I'm going to get this morning, okay? As technical as I'm going to get. All right, so hang on with me for this part, and I promise this is as technical as it'll get. There are two types of manuscripts, okay? I always think it's funny when pastors and even you know academics uh, like Gurry talk to people. I imagine if this, if this congregation is like most congregations, um, there are people there who deal with complicated things all the time. There are computer programmers. There may be scientists. There may be doctors. There may be mechanics. Uh, there are people who deal with complicated things all the time. Um, and we don't need to spoon feed or condescend or talk down to people. Yes, they can they can understand the difference between lectionary manuscripts and continuous text manuscripts of uh, biblical books. Um, but anyways, let's continue. One type is what we call continuous text manuscripts. That's where a scribe wanted to copy the whole Gospel of John start to finish, right? Okay. Right. And maybe he had Matthew, Mark, and Luke before that. The other type is what we call lectionaries. Now, those of us in, in sort of a low church tradition or Baptist tradition might not be as familiar with the lectionary system, but the lectionary is designed for reading in church or in the Middle, Middle Ages in the monastery. And what scribes would do with the lectionary is you take one passage, say, from Mark, and you read that. And then you take another passage from, say, John, and you read that. And then the next Sunday, you do the same thing, with, but with different passages from all over the Bible. Okay? And that's the other type of manuscript we have of John's Gospel. So two types of manuscripts, continuous text ones, and then these lectionary ones. Right. Now, my question is, when he's introducing this, what I, one thing I find interesting about this is I feel like he's doing this because, as he's going to continue, he's going to argue against the authenticity of um, the woman taking an adultery passage based on the external extant Greek evidence manuscript. Now, ordinarily, it seems to me, when modern eclectic scholars are talking about the text of the Bible, they give the most weight to the continuous text manuscripts. Um, Westcott and Hort gave the greatest weight to two of them, just two of them, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. Um, and, but he knows that when you look at the evidence of the continuous text Greek manuscripts, that the, the evidence is overwhelmingly in favor of the inclusion or the authenticity of the woman taking an adultery passage. I think he's going to, he's going to address uh, the direct figures, but this is, let me read again uh, from uh, my booklet here on uh, page four. Uh, according to contemporary scholar Maurice A. Robinson, the Pericope Adulteri appears in at least 1,476 extant Greek manuscripts and is omitted in only 267. And I have a footnote there uh, in my little booklet. That's footnote 10. Let me read that. I, sit, I wrote, in a symposium on the Pericope Adulteri held at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, 
on the 25th and 26th of April 2014, Robinson's, Maurice Robinson, reported he had identified 1,476 extant Greek manuscripts, which include the Pericope Adulteri, and 267, which omit it. James R. Snap informed me in private email correspondence in November 2021 that the number of Greek manuscripts identified as including the Pericope Adulteri is now numbered at 1,502. So we have over 1,500 manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, continuous text manuscripts that include the woman taking an adultery passage. And there are 267 which omit it. And going back to uh, my booklet here on page 10, uh, I continue. Um, Robinson also solidly affirms the authenticity of the Pericope Adultery based in part on this overwhelming evidence. Majority text advocate Wilbur N. Pickering likewise observes that the Pericope Adulteri is omitted in only 15% of all extant manuscripts. And again, I, I think that Gurry wants to talk about the lectionaries because as we're going to see in the lectionary manuscripts, the Pericope Adulteri is omitted in a good number of them. So it sort of um, favors his cause if he doesn't have to deal just with the extant manuscript evidence. So he, can, he wants to bring in the lectionary evidence to sort of tip uh, the scales in his favor. But let's let's continue um, and get back to his sermon. In the continuous text manuscripts, the story here of the woman caught in adultery is found in about 1,500 of them. What I said. About, about 1,500 of those, and is missing from about 270 of them. All right? So that's about 85% of those that have it, and then if my math is right, 15% that don't. The lectionaries then split into two types of systems that I won't go into detail about, okay? But the first type of system includes the story, and there are about 500 copies of this type. The, the second type of lectionaries um, we does not have it at all. And what's interesting about this one is that in those lectionaries, the reading for that day goes from John chapter 7, verse 52, and then jumps right to John chapter 8, verse 12. You see that? Which suggests that whoever invented that lectionary system probably did not have this passage in their Bible. Does that make sense? All right. Now let's, so, so the two types of... Okay, let me, let me pause here again. And I said, I suggested that I think he introduced the lectionary because he wanted to, uh, he realized that 85% um, of the continued text manuscripts have the woman taking adultery. So we got to bring in the cavalry of, of some lectionary manuscripts that would, that would, a significant number of them would omit it. Um, in my booklet, again, let's look at, uh, this is a discussion I have on page 11. Um where I say we might also call attention to another possible ecclesiastical explanation as to why the Pericope Adulteri is absent in some Greek manuscripts and ancient translations. This explanation involves the fact that the Pericope Adulteri was regularly omitted in many early lectionaries, liturgical documents which include compilations of biblical texts to be read in worship services throughout the year. F.H.A. Scrivener, great 19th century um, Bible scholar, English Bible scholar, observed, quote, in the lectionaries, this section was never read 
as part of the lesson for Pentecost. He says, John 7, 37 through 8, 12 was, uh, was the passage that was, um, that was uh, omitted, basically, during the Pentecost reading. So they did not read the story of the woman taken in adultery as part of the Pentecost reading. But Scrivener says it was reserved for such for such saints, for the festivals of such saints as Theodora on September the 18th or Pelagia, October the 8th. And in many service books whose menology was not very full, it would thus be omitted altogether. And so the reason the passage is missing in many of these lectionaries is because it was not read as a regular part of the Pentecost season, but it was reserved for some of these feast days of particular women. This is discussed um, by uh, Tommy Wasserman and Jennifer Knust as well, that there were these um, these uh, these women, perhaps who uh, famous women who had um, you know been um, prostitutes, maybe women of ill repute who were converted and then were recognized as saints. And they thought it was wonderful to read the Pericope Adulterite on their feast days. And so they didn't read it during the Pentecost service, the main service, but they read it on these days. And so here's an explanation for why it doesn't appear in, in the liturgies. Um, so anyways, um, I, I think that's the reason why he wanted to bring in this, this discussion of, um, of, of these um these lectionary sources, because he recognizes that if you just look at the continuous text um, uh, manuscripts of the Gospel of John, it's there overwhelmingly. It's overwhelmingly present there. And so those that's the evidence, not the lectionaries, that's given the most weight, even by reasoned eclectic scholars, in determining what they think is the true and authentic text of Scripture. All right, let's go back to his sermon and see if we can push forward. Lectures with about 680 copies of those. So if, Joan, you want to put the slide up, what you get then is something like this. All right. In blue, those are our Greek copies that have it. Well, and we can't see the, those are our Greek manuscripts the slides, but anyway. So when your ESV footnote says something like some manuscripts, <laughs> which is pretty vague, right? That's pretty vague. Some manuscripts don't include this passage. That's what we're talking about, all right? Out of about 3,000 Greek manuscripts, just over about 30% do not have this passage in them, okay? Well, only 15% of the continuous text Greek manuscripts, and we've already seen there's a very practical reason why it's not included in some of the, of the lectionary manuscripts. Okay. Now, the problem is bare numbers don't really tell us very much, do they? Amen. They do not. We need to think more about the age and the quality of these manuscripts to think about what we're, what, what this implies. Okay, he's going to make another type of argument. He's not he not only is he going to say, well, there, you know, maybe according to him, thirty percent if we take in the lectionaries and uh, the continuous text manuscripts, but he's going to say the ones that omit it, they are the earliest and best. So let's listen to his rationale here. 
we also need to think about some other evidence beyond just Greek manuscripts. So I'm going to try to cover this as quickly as I can, because, again, I don't want to get too bogged down into the details. First of all, let me address what your footnote says in your ESV about it being in different places. Okay. Remember, your, your footnote says that sometimes it occurs. Okay, we're going to go back to the floating tradition discussion. Sorry, I, I again, I, I just briefly listened through parts of it the first time. And uh, I, let's go ahead and he's going to return to the whole floating tradition argument. Let's listen to what he says. Most of the time it occurs here in John. Sometimes it occurs in chapter 7, verse 36, or after 21, 25, and then sometimes after... Uh, actually in Luke's gospel, all right? Without going into the details of this, what you need to know is basically, I think, all those movements of it, uh, they're only in a, a small, small handful of medieval manuscripts that, that do that. Glad to hear him acknowledge this. My question is, why is that footnote still there in the ESV? It's extremely misleading. And they almost all have to do with that lectionary system I told you about. Where, scribes where is Elijah Hickson going to the editorial board of the ESV and saying that he wants just weights and measures to correct this ESV footnote at the woman taken in adultery. I, I really hope uh, those wonderful crusaders at the textual confidence collective uh, will uh, really care about getting the facts right, getting the data right and go to the ESV and ask them to change this footnote. Got confused because of that lectionary system and the way it jumps around. So I actually think that's not super helpful to have in your footnote because it makes it sound worse than it is. <laughs> okay. All right. Enough of that. We'll move on. Huh. Do you do you think that maybe they made it sound worse than it is, to use your words, because they have a bias against the traditional text and in favor of the modern critical text? Um, sounds like that's the case. Um, and, and yet if we make that, if we make that um um, suggestion, you know, we're accused of being conspiracy theorists, but here even uh, Gurry is acknowledging that there is bias among editors and translators. I could say a lot more about that, but I'm not going to. All right. When we think about the quality of these manuscripts, these 15, these 3,000 manuscripts, you need to know they're not all like super duper early. Okay. The vast bulk of our manuscripts are from the Middle Ages. And when you go back to the earliest manuscripts we have, if you were to say take um, oh, the first, the earliest, say, dozen copies we have of John's gospel, only one of them actually has this passage. Again, with all due respect to Dr. Gurry, I think actually now he is um, giving a slant on this. He's, he's telling us that if we take the earliest 12 witnesses to the Pericope Adulteri, only one uh, includes uh, the Pericope Adulteri. Um and I would just challenge that. I have a little section in um, my booklet. Um, this is on pages uh, four and five, where uh, I point out: let's take let's take the earliest let's take the earliest five unsealed manuscripts. Let's take the earliest five of the earliest five unseals. There are two that omit the Pericope Adulteri, and that's. Codices Aleph or Sinaiticus and uh, Codex B or O3 Vaticanus. It's not, they're not there. The darlings of West Cotton Hort. Um, what about uh, two of the other earliest, earliest unsealed manuscripts? That's Codex Alexandrinus A or 02 
and Codex Aframi Rescriptus C or 04? Well, as I note in my booklet, in both of those manuscripts, it's not necessarily that, that the Pricope Adulterae is omitted, but the place in, uh, where John 753 through 811 would appear in those manuscripts is damaged or defective at this point. So they're not witnesses against inclusion. They're damaged or defective. And uh, again, we've got, then we would have two um, that omit it, definitely omit it, uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. We would have two of the five earliest uncial manuscripts that don't have it because they're defective or damaged. That's Alexandrinus and Ephraimir Scriptus. And then there is one manuscript, Codex Bezai, one of the earliest, that does have it. So this is what I wrote on page four of my little booklet. I wrote, this means that among that among five of the unseals that are considered most ancient by modern scholars, one includes the Pericope Adulteri, Bezai, two excluded, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and two are inconclusive, Alexandrinus and Ephraimir Scriptus. I continue, there are other early unseals that omit the PA, but some of these also demonstrate strange patterns at the point of omission. Codex L, for example, has a vacant uh, space following John 7.52 up until 8.12. This might indicate the copious awareness of the PA's omission. Codex Delta omits the PA, but the beginning of 8.12 is followed by 16 blank lines. Um, so, uh, bias is a real thing. Gurry has his own bias. I have my bias. And a lot of times um, your bias affects the way you look at the evidence. So he's going to argue that um, that although the Pericope Adulteri uh, is only omitted in a minority of manuscripts, he's going to suggest they are the earliest and best. But I've just pointed out that's not necessarily the case. So when you think about the date of our manuscripts, not just the numbers, this is something scholars have to think about. What about the earliest ones? Okay. And the earliest ones generally do not have it. Okay. So that includes copies as early as the third and fourth centuries. Joan, if you want to show the next slide up there. Here, these are our two earliest copies of John's gospel. Where are my Greek students at? I see a number. Let's just read it right now, shall we? This is your quiz. You didn't know your exam was going to be today. They're like, please don't. Please don't. This is, these, are, these are really hard. So apparently there's some Phoenix Seminary students that attend this uh, Trinity Bible Church. Read if you don't have a trained eye, okay? But those are earliest copies. And, and, the, and the text just goes straight from the end of John chapter 7, John 7, 52, straight to John 8, what we call John 8, 12. Keep in mind, there's no verse numbers at this time, right? You can probably tell. You don't have to read a word of Greek. You'll be able to work, read a word of Greek. You can look at that see there's no chapter numbers and no verse numbers, right? Okay. So it's not like a scribe would somehow go, huh, how did I end up getting this wrong number? Okay. It doesn't, doesn't quite work that way. All right. So those are two of our earliest manuscripts. Joan, if you want to go to the next one. This is our earliest manuscript that does have the story. And what's significant about this one, I've given you a picture for a reason, because on the left side is Greek, and on the right side is Latin. Okay, this is a, what we call a bilingual manuscript. Okay, from the 5th century, 
Codex Beza is what it's known as. And in the orange square there, that's at least the start of the story. The reason why I want to put this picture up is, one, because it's the earliest that has the story, but also because it's not a coincidence in my mind that it's Greek and Latin. Because one of the things that we find is that the story is more common in the Latin-speaking side of the early church than it is in the Greek-speaking. Okay, We'll unpack that here in a minute, but I'll just show you that. And then one more. And yet there it is also in Greek in, in Bezai. So just because it, it is a a um, a diglot and it has Greek and Latin doesn't uh, diminish in any way the fact that, that, that it is an uncial manuscript that tells us that that the, uh, about the antiquity of this passage. No one, as far as I know, questions the antiquity of this passage, that it is that it is ancient. Um, even those who believe believe it is spurious would agree that it has ancient attestation. It just doesn't come out of out of nowhere. It's not invented in the Middle Ages. Um, so it's there. Uh, Wasserman, uh, uh, Tommy Wasserman and Jennifer Knust uh, do a nice job uh, in their monograph on the woman taking adultery passage by talking about some of uh, the other types of material evidences that show us that this passage was known among early Christians, looking at things like little uh, ivory jewelry boxes that are dated to the fourth century that, uh, that, that have an artistic depiction of the woman taken in adultery before Christ. And it shows that this passage was known and loved from the earliest uh, times of recorded Christian history and 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 then we also have obviously uh, evidence of it in ancient manuscripts just got to show some pictures for the kids this morning all right this this is an eighth century manuscript known as codex regius and this one's interesting because what you can see is the scribe actually left a blank space you see that these are two consecutive pages and that orange box is where you could fit this story uh, those ones these are kind of manuscripts that really excite scholars like me. And what it shows us is that there was controversy. That's another thing we would say for those of us who defend the authenticity of the woman taking adultery. We recognize there was controversy about this passage. And uh, there there were some people who wanted to include it and some people who wanted to remove it. And uh, this manuscript that he's talking about that leaves the blank space shows us, uh, as I made reference to also from my booklet, uh, that uh, there was controversy about this passage and whether or not it should be included. It's like a puzzle. we got to figure out what happened here. Did the scribe think, well, I know about the story, but I don't think it's original or authentic, so I'll leave it out. But other people might disagree with me, so I'll leave them room if they want to fix it later. Uh, who knows? You know, He didn't leave a note. Now, there, there is a little note on Latin over there on the left side, um, but I don't think it helps as much. It's probably quite a bit later. Okay, so this just gives you some idea of, of how we find this section of text in some of our earliest manuscripts, okay? So as I said, the earliest manuscripts do not have it. Then we can think about other thing, other evidence beyond just the manuscripts. Early on, the Greek New Testament was translated into other languages like Latin. We've already seen a picture of Latin, but also translated into languages like Syriac and Coptic. Coptic is a, an Egyptian language that uses Greek letters. And most of these earliest translations, in fact, those those three in particular, which are our earliest, they also do not have this story in them. Right. Uh, that statement is is that statement he just made is quite misleading. Uh, kind of like the ESV footnote. 
Um, let me just read again, just one more little section from my booklet. Um, uh, this is page three of uh, my booklet, uh, why John 7, 50 through 3, 8, 11 is in the Bible. With respect to ancient versions, the Pericope Adultery appears in many ancient translations, most notably in the sphere of Western Christianity and in many old Latin manuscripts. The old Latin manuscripts have capitula or chapter headings, which in some of the oldest summarize the Pericope Adultery as, in Latin, ubi adulterum demisit, where he dismissed an adulteress. In others of these ancient capitula, the adulteress is described as mulierum deprehensum in moeccatione, the woman taken in adultery. This is noteworthy because the term moeccatione is a Greek loan word in Latin, indicating that the passage was known in the earlier Greek exemplars and not merely in Latin. And uh, I drew that information from uh, the monograph that I mentioned a few moments ago by uh, Jennifer Canoose and Tommy Wasserman. Um, and they note uh, that they believe the capitula gives evidence that the Pericope Adultery was present in John in a Latin context by the third century, even though they don't believe it's authentic. They're saying it's showing up in these Latin capitula, these old Latin manuscripts, and they're and, and it's it's Latin that is um, that are it's based on loan words taken from Greek, meaning that the translators had it in the third century, two fifty, in Greek manuscripts. Um, so there's no question about the the antiquity. There's no question about the fact that. Uh, the Pericope Adultery was included in ancient versions like the Old Latin. And of course, uh, it was included in uh, Jerome's Latin Vulgate um, uh, in the end. Right. Right. So they suggest that at least whoever translated those, uh, those editions did not have it in their Greek copies as well. Now, it was eventually added to some of these translations. So Jerome... You may know the name Jerome, who translates the Latin Vulgate in the 4th century. Jerome actually tells the one place that he says some of his manuscripts don't have the story. Some don't, but what does that imply? Most did. Which means most of them do, right? And then when he translates the Latin Vulgate, he does translate it into Latin. And that's how it spreads in the Latin uh, tradition, all right? The Syriac translation, the, this story does not enter until much, much later like in the Middle Ages, and the cup. But there's no question about the uh, about the antiquity of it. The translation is similar, where it's not found in most of our early copies of the cop. And both the, the Syriac-speaking church and the Coptic-speaking church churches uh, were also prone to other novel ideas and beliefs. I think in the, the Syriac church, uh, they didn't accept... Um, uh, books like like Second uh, Peter and Second and Third John, and the Book of Revelation, and so um, and so they did not have a clear Orthodox canon, 
And so maybe we shouldn't be surprised that that uh, some, for, for some reason, might have wanted to exclude the woman taking adultery. And hopefully we'll talk in a few moments about why this passage was controversial and why some, particularly in the East, attempted to um, uh, repress it, suppress it, uh, and why, though it persisted, especially in the Western church. What's most interesting to me, though, is a third type of evidence we have, which we call patristic evidence. The church fathers were these early theologians who wrote about the Bible a lot. <laughs> and it won't surprise you to know that when they did, they liked to quote from the Bible, right? What, do we, what kind of evidence do we get from those early church fathers? I think this is the most important evidence of all in some ways. If we look at the Latin-speaking fathers, we know the story is well-known by the 4th century. I already mentioned Jerome. The other name we could add to that list is Augustine. Augustine also discusses the story and says it's found in most of his copies. Not all, but most. Augustine also famously gives us the first explanation for why someone might have taken it out of the Bible. And I find, I have to tell you, with offense, with, with, with no offense intended to those of you who love Augustine, okay? Thinking of my friend Steve Doobie just for a second. Sorry, Steve. I think he's really, I think he's, I think this explanation is really bad. He says, well, somebody took it out of the Bible because these men were afraid their wives would read the story and then be unfaithful to them. That's literally, that's literally his argument. And I think, I don't really buy that, Augustine, at all. <laughs> I don't think, first of all, there's a number of other places in the Gospels where Jesus shows mercy on, say, unfaithful men or women, and they didn't take those parts out of the Bible, right? Well, there's no passage that's quite uh, as clear a parallel uh, uh, to, that's a clear parallel to the passage of the woman taken in adultery. That's one reason why um, scripture is very deficient without it. But let's let's listen to exactly what Augustine said. And let me pull up again uh, my booklet and have a discussion of uh, the church fathers and um, their references to uh, the Pericope Adulterae. He rightly points out that uh, this passage is well known and preached upon and talked about by Ambrose of Milan. Um, and then it's talked about by Augustine of Hippo, who was uh, converted under the preaching of Ambrose. And here's exactly what uh, Augustine wrote around the year 400 in a little uh, uh, book that was titled On Adulterous Marriages. He wrote, certain persons of little faith are rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, remove from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness towards the adulteress, as if he who had said, sin no more, had granted permission to sin. And, and so he was laughing at this, but Augustine was saying that really at the core, it was a question. There were people who opposed this because they didn't like the idea that Jesus was showing uh, his authoritative interpretation of the law. And because of his authority, that he could forgive this woman who was deserving of the death penalty. And so the command of Christ um, is, is over and authoritative over the law because he is the lawgiver. And so, uh, again, we can see how this would have been controversial on an, on an ethical level. 
Now, aside from that, I make an argument in my booklet that Peter Gray doesn't mention, I don't think, in the sermon. We'll see as we keep going. And that is, I've suggested, others have suggested, that part of the reason this passage may have been controversial was because not just on the personal ethics level, as Augustine seems to be speaking about it, but on the level of dealing with matters within the church, there was a controversy that was taking place uh, around the time of uh, Augustine and afterwards, uh, and even before his time, that was known as the Novation Controversy. And this was a schism. It actually began in the early third century. During a time of persecution, there were some Christians who lapsed and who denied the faith. And there was a debate about whether such persons should be allowed upon repentance to come back into the church. And there were some who were rigorous who said, no, they get no second chances. Once they have uh, committed this uh, spiritual um, sin of denying Christ, they cannot be forgiven and received back. Um, and, and some of those people who denied the faith were even called by some of these uh, early writers adulterers. And this passage, I think, was appealed to against the rigorous party to say, look, Christ forgave the woman taken in adultery, and therefore we ought to forgive those who denied Christ during a time of persecution and allow them to be restored to the church. Um, I share uh, in my booklet a quotation from a Spanish uh, church father, uh, Pacian, uh, who wrote in the late fourth century, are you not willing to read in the gospel that the Lord also spared the adulteress who confessed whom no man had condemned. And he cited that in arguments with uh, those who were uh, advocates of the novation position that would be the rigorous position. And so uh, we, can, we can see that in the Western church, Ambrose, Augustine, they were using it. They're also aware of the fact that people are trying to remove it, whether for personal ethical reasons or possibly uh, because of reasons related to the, the novation uh, um, schism or the novation controversy. And so we can see good um, historical, plausible historical reasons as to why there was controversy about this passage. But we can also see that that those that controversy was overcome and there was a consensus as shown in the extant manuscript evidence of the continuous text Greek manuscripts that it was uh, definitely won the consensus and the the approval uh, uh, and the the acknowledgement, the acceptance of most early Christians. Let's continue. Okay. Secondly, if you actually read the story with like even you're half awake, you get to the end and realize Jesus is not excusing her sin, is he? Okay. So I just have to say, though I love Augustine, I think on this one he whiffed it. All right. Sorry. Augustine didn't say anything wrong. I, 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 I know he, it's uncomfortable for him because he, he, because what's really important is that, that Augustine is telling us there are people trying to remove this passage. So we get, we get a firsthand report in the year 400 from Augustine of the fact that some people were trying to remove this passage from their Bibles. And 
so this this eyewitness report from Augustine doesn't sit well with those who want to suggest it was just a spurious addition. But quite the opposite, Augustine tells us, no, it's authentic, but there were people who tried to remove it. And so I can understand why he would want to laugh off and not give uh, a lot of weight to what Augustine says here. Sorry, Augustine. Okay. What about in the Greek-speaking East? Okay, we've talked a little bit about Latin. By the fourth century, it's clearly known to people like Jerome and Augustine, and they even seem to they even accept it. In the Greek-speaking East, it's more interesting. Uh, we don't find this story referenced at all in the writings of a very, very famous preacher. In fact, the most famous preacher of the ancient world, which is John Chrysostom. He's a fourth-century a preacher. He's known throughout the world. People still read his sermons today because they're so wonderful, and he never even mentions it in all. Well, uh, I would say we don't have any um, extant uh, evidences of his mention of it, but often, like in Chrysostom's sermons, he uh, sometimes doesn't deal with every single passage. And also, since we know that this passage was controversial in the East, Perhaps that was the reason we don't find mention of it. If he did speak about it, perhaps the sermons where he did speak about it were suppressed. They were not copied. Or maybe um, he held to a view that, uh, it, that perhaps he did hold that it was spurious. But but Chrysostom's judgment about that is not authoritative in the end. And we don't have any explicit condemnation from Chrysostom of the authenticity of this passage. Which is really curious. If he knew about it, you'd expect him to say something about Not it. Not necessarily. And in fact, in the Greek-speaking East, you don't find a single commentator on John's gospel who knows the passage until the 12th century. That's an often repeated statement. There, there's no um, Greek-speaking commentator who addresses this until the 12th century, except that, again, if you look at my little booklet, um, I point out that uh, we have a reference to the woman taking adultery, which appears in a, in a third century Syriac work, which is known as the Didascalia Apostolorum, or the teaching of the apostles. Um, and uh, most importantly, uh, in the writings of an Alexandrian uh, theologian who was known as Didymus the Blind, uh, writing in the fourth century in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, he wrote the following, and I'm quoting here uh, as it's uh, 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 quoted in my booklet on page 10. A woman, it says, was condemned by the Jews on account of a sin and was taken to the place to be stoned where that was customary to happen. The Savior, it says, when he saw her and beholding that they were ready to stone her, said to those about to throw stones at her, Whoever has not sinned, let him take up a stone and cast it. If someone is conscious in himself not to have sinned, taking a stone, let him hit her. And no one dared, since they knew in themselves and perceived that they were also liable for some things, they did not dare to strike her, end quote. Now, he doesn't say this is from the Gospel of John, but he clearly knows the account of the woman taken in adultery. And actually, uh, I... Uh, in the footnote that I have here, footnote uh, 25, uh, I wrote the following. My citation of it was taken from the Canoeston Wasserman book to cast the first stone, page 196. 
And I write in the footnote, Canoost and Wasserman note that though Didymus makes no direct reference here to the account being in John's gospel, the modern editors of his commentary, edited by Kramer and Kreber, quote, conclude that this is likely, end quote, page 196. So the editors of Didymus the Blind believe that he took that from his copy of the Gospel of John. So that would be in the fourth century, and that would refute what uh, Peter Gurry just said, that no one addresses this in the East until the 12th century. That's an anecdote that gets passed around. It's in Bruce Metzger's textual commentary, but um, in the end, I think it doesn't stack up uh, with the evidence. It was controversial in the East, but it was known uh, by Eastern theologians, by Eastern writers, Eastern so-called church fathers. Uh, let's continue. Okay, which suggests to me that probably what okay. happened is the story first gets into some copies of the Bible, like that one I showed you, where they're Greek and Latin. And the Latin-speaking side of the church accepts the story, and then it spreads in the Latin church much more than in the Greek side of the, speaking side of the church. Well, that's a very interesting theory you have there, Dr. Gurry. Um, do you have any proof for that? Absolutely none. So he spins out a scenario where it was invented in the West. It was it was added to Latin Greek copies, and that's how it came about. Well, isn't it just as possible that it was original? And like Augustine said, there were people who tried to remove it, and and so um, the the. The, the supposition that it was not original and it was added or foisted upon the text um, is a subjective judgment that doesn't rest on any historical evidence at all. The evidence can be interpreted quite the opposite, that it was original and there were those who attempted to remove it. In fact, I think the evidence um, points to that as the more likely scenario, particularly, on a, again, on a theological level. We're not talking here just about secular literature. We're talking about scripture. Would God allow something that was spurious to be included and read by most Christians, most places in the world as scripture if it was spurious? Okay. More tellingly on this question of the church fathers is that the earliest references we have to this story actually suggest that it's not in John's gospel. Okay. The very first reference we have to is from the 3rd century. The story is referenced without any source, so we just don't know. But by the 4th century, we have a church father named Didymus the Blind. That's his name. Okay, That's really his name. Okay. Remember what I just read to you from, from uh, Knust and Wasserman on this? And yes, he was actually blind. Okay. He apparently had memorized the Bible. That's how he's able to write about it, which is another story for another time. Okay. But Didymus the Blind tells us in his writings that he says the story is found in certain Gospels, plural. Hear that? He says it's found in certain Gospels, plural. And then most tellingly, the church historian Eusebius in the 4th century. But his editors believe that he found it in his copy of the Gospel of John, as I've already pointed out. And if he said it was it was found in many copies, this could mean in many copies of the Gospel of John. So that's another way to interpret it. He says the story is found in what he calls the gospel according to the Hebrews. And he well, this is another kind of controversial point. There's a reference in uh, Eusebius's ecclesiastical history 
to a, a mention of an account that appears in the writings of, um, uh, let's see, of uh, Papias, I believe it is. Let me see if I can find it. I do address it, uh, this, this uh, issue within my uh, booklet. And let's see if I can locate uh, my discussion of that, that point. Um, <laughs> though there are a few references in the Pericope Adultery in the Eastern tradition, evidence does, does exist. This incident was well known among Greek-speaking Christians. In his ecclesiastical history, Eusebius of Caesarea cites Papias of Hierapolis's second century discussion of, quote, a woman who was accused before the Lord of many sins. And in uh, my footnote for this on page 23, I note uh, Eusebius, and this is in Ecclesiastical History, Book 3, Chapter 39, says Papias's reference was to the account as it appeared in a work titled The Gospel According to the Hebrews. But I point out this does not exclude its presence in John. I have read other people who have suggested that the reference of Papias of Hierapolis that's cited in Eusebius uh, is perhaps not even to the woman taking an adultery passage, but to uh, some other um, account in the work, the Gospel according to the Hebrews, about Jesus' interaction with a sinful woman. Um, maybe like the woman uh, who washed the, the feet of our Lord. But again, if it's in the, the gospel uh, of the Hebrews, then it was in a, an apocryphal book. And so it doesn't really bear much authority. So I'm not going to put much weight on the reference in Eusebius, it, even though it would be a an argument in favor of the antiquity and authenticity of the woman taking an adultery passage, if it is a reference to this event, even if it was recorded in something called the Gospel of the Hebrews and also in the Gospel of John, um, I don't think that, that um, the evidence from Eusebius is going to be definitive uh, pro or con for the authenticity of the woman taking an adultery. May at this point be citing an even earlier source for this information. All right. The first source we have that very clearly references the story and says it's from John's gospel is Ambrose in the late fourth century. So around the same time as. Couldn't be late fourth century because Augustine is writing his work in 400. And so Ambrose uh, would have uh, known about this. Uh, let's see the dates for um, Ambrose. The dates for Ambrose are 339 to 397. So, you know, we all make mistakes, and, and Gary said it wouldn't have been till the late um, uh, fourth century, but if Ambrose is writing about it, and Augustine is writing his work, he makes reference to it uh, in the year 400, then it must have known, been known much earlier than that, because they uh, think of it as it's part of their Bibles, and there are people trying to remove it from their Bibles. And so, um, uh, again, we already talked about the fact that it's in the capituli of the old Latin manuscripts, which is going to put it uh, in uh, the 200s as, as being in Greek manuscripts in the 200s. Jerome and Augustine. Well, that's really significant. That suggests to us that this may well be a story that people were telling 
and it ends up in different Gospels. And eventually somebody says, we've got to put this in the Bible, and they put it in John's Gospel. Are you Interesting speculation you have there, but you have absolutely no factual evidence to back that up. And again, I can, I can uh, suggest an alternative that it was original, and there were people who tried to remove it. And I think actually it's a much more plausible explanation. You, you're you're going to have us believe that Christians had such a loose view of the Bible that they would accept uh, the insertion of 12 verses that had not been there before. Um, and, and so I, I don't believe that the early Christians would have stood for the insertion of 12 spurious verses into their Bibles. I think it's much more likely that persons would have come along to try to remove uh, such a passage because it was controversial. With me. Now, at this point, you probably have a question in your mind that you're going, well, how often does this happen? Like, were people just for centuries just like adding whatever they wanted to the Bible? <laughs> right? And right? the good news for you and for me this morning is the answer, the simple answer to that is nervous laughter, right? I'm thinking people in the pew are thinking, what? People are adding things to the Bible? Um, right. No, this does not happen a lot. That doesn't happen very often at all. There are only two places in your entire New Testament where you have a passage of this length that is in question like this. Some of you already know this. It's this story, the woman caught in adultery, and then the, what we call the longer ending of Mark. Does the fact that you're saying it doesn't happen very often somehow reduce the impact of the fact that it happens at all? Um, I'm not comforted by that. But you might still be thinking, but okay, but but Dr. Gurry, you're saying this did happen. How do we know it didn't happen a bunch of other times and we just don't know it? That's right. It undermines our ability to trust what is Scripture, to understand what is Scripture. And there's also been no mention in this talk at all of the doctrine of the providential preservation of Scripture. Yeah, and that maybe our Bible was changed by people and we don't know it. And so what we have today is some sort of hodgepodge Bible, whatever people wanted to put in there. The really yes, this is the dangers of these theories and Bibles that change and supposed updates that happen because of new manuscript discoveries. Persons begin to think the Bible is just a hodgepodge of things that were thrown together. Simple answer to that question is we know that didn't happen everywhere else <laughs> for the same reason we think it probably did happen here. And the, What? The answer is all those 3,000 copies of the Greek New Testament that I mentioned, right? Well, half of those are very late lectionary manuscripts that would have been composed uh, hundreds of years uh, after the early transmission of the New Testament. And what we do have of the um, continuous uh, text, Greek New Man uh, Manuscripts and New Testament show that overwhelmingly there was a consensus that the Pericope Adulteri was authentic, original, and belonged uh, in the Gospel of John. You would have to argue that people managed to change the Bible without leaving any trace whatsoever. Are you with me? In fact, the fact that this one has left such a such a significant trail, if I could put it that way, that's how we know there's an issue at all, do you see? So we know this didn't happen in other places in the same way and using the same evidence that we used to know there's a problem here. Are you with me? 
That's why you have so much confidence in your Bible. That what you have in your Bible, where there isn't a note that the translators have given you, the translators are giving you what's found in pretty much every manuscript. Are you with me? Uh, not exactly the case, because if you look, um, and I think, you know, Gurry, of all people, should 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 know this. He's the one who's written about the fact that there are um, uh, half a million variants within the extant manuscript um, tradition. And it's not just a matter, although these two passages are the longest, it's not just a matter of these. Uh, look at the New Testament textual key that's published by the Trinitarian Bible Society that lists 650 variants, although these are the longest. Gurry's view suggests that the whole transmission process was hopelessly corrupted. He has written as much. The whole transmission process was hopelessly corrupted, and it's only in the last 150 years that scholars have been able, uh, using the art and science of textual criticism, to reconstruct some close approximation of perhaps what the text looked like uh, in the second or third century. And so, uh, yes, uh, modern textual criticism does exactly what he suggests. That is, it, it, it undermines confidence in the integrity of the scriptures. That's really important for you to know, because the worst thing that could happen this morning is that you leave thinking, wow, my Bible must be full of places like this. Well, it, it is full of variants, and it is full of places where the modern critical text differs from the traditional text. It's not. I'm not going to be. Uh, you've written and said there are half a million variants uh, in the New Testament the manuscript uh, transmission tradition. Back next week to preach. Some of you are like, thank goodness. No, I was... okay. <laughs> right? Your Bible is remarkably trustworthy. It's remarkably trustworthy. Not totally trustworthy, not absolutely trustworthy, but it's remarkably trustworthy. It's remarkably trustworthy. It has been copied so many times that we have good reason to believe that where there's no differences in our manuscripts, it's because they preserve the original text. As and wouldn't you think that it was copied so many times and there was a clear consensus, even though there was a period of controversy about this passage, so that 85% um, of the extant manuscripts, continuous text man manuscripts we have of this passage, um, uh, have this passage, accept it as authoritative. And it's only been in the last 150 years that we've had Protestant Bibles that have tried to put brackets and footnotes around it. Um, isn't this really just a novelty of the modern or postmodern era that there are questions, doubts being raised about the authenticity of this passage? God inspired it and gave it to his people. All right, so that's what we might call the sort of the evidence of the manuscripts. Let me just briefly mention some other things that people think about when they ask about this text and whether it's original to John or not. Okay, there is a little bit of a disjunction that the story. Okay, now he's going to talk briefly, although most of this discussion has been about external evidence. And if you're wondering, what are we? We're we're only thirty minutes into this into this fifty-six minute uh, sermon. Like I said, I'm. I don't think it's going to go much longer because I think he's just going to talk a little bit more about the internal evidence. He talked about the external evidence. He can talk about the internal evidence. 
And we're going to end uh, at, at when he finishes that discussion. And I, I'm not going to uh, review uh, the applications that he tries to make of this as an illustration, except I want to listen to how he introduces that. But he's going to transition now and talk about what we would call the internal evidence. And that is, does John 7:53 through 8:11 fit within the narrative of the Gospel of John, or is it um, is it something that sticks out like a sore thumb, and 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 and, and is an awkward interruption into uh, the narrative as it would otherwise appear without John 7:53 through 8:11? Let's listen to a little bit of his discussion of that. Recreates. All right. Some people will point to things like the style of the Greek or some of the words that are used in it. I'm not going to go into that partly because I just think the story is so short that it's not entirely fair to compare it to the rest of John. I think that if you want to read uh, some of my arguments in favor of uh, going through the language and showing that it's perfectly consistent with John 7:53, what we read in the rest of John, I would commend again my little booklet and I have the discussion on the language and the style of uh, the passage being Johannine or authentically Johannine on pages seven uh, through nine of my booklet. We could make accurate deductions about who wrote it or who didn't. But you will notice at the end of chapter seven, verse 52, okay, the priest, the chief priests and the Pharisees are having a conversation with Nicodemus about the people. And it just so happens to be a conversation about the law and people being accused by it and what you should do when people are accused, right? Now then verse 52 says, they replied, are you from Galilee too? They're saying this to Nicodemus. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then if you jump to chapter 8, verse 12, it says, again, Jesus spoke to them. And it flows pretty naturally because the them is the people he's just been talking to before that. The problem with verse 12 is, all right, let's let's pause here for a moment. Um, and so what he's pointing out is if you look at 753, uh, it is a description of of a conversation between uh, um, Nicodemus and the chief priests and the Pharisees. Actually, if you have your Bible, uh, look at uh, John 7, verse 45. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never spake man like this man. Then answered them, The Pharisees, are ye also deceived? Uh, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, He that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou, art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Now, I, I'm going to back it up because um, let, me, let me pull back up the sermon. And I want you to listen to what Peter Gurry says here, let me back it up just a little bit. Hopefully we'll catch it. Chapter 8, verse 12, it says, again, Jesus spoke to them. And it flows pretty naturally because the them is the people he's just been talking to before that. The problem with verse 12 is if you have the story of the woman caught in adultery before it, the last thing in that story is that everybody's gone. Right? Oh, sorry, I got to back it up just a little bit. I'm sorry. Him and the woman. 
Let's go but, back. It's not wanting to move for me. There we go. Fact, the fact that this one has left such a such a significant trail, if I could put it that way, that's how we know there's an issue at all. Do you see? So we know this didn't happen in other places in the same way and using the same evidence. Sorry, we have listened to know there's a problem over, here. This over again. That's why you have so much confidence in your Bible that what you have in your Bible, where there isn't a note that the translators have given you, the translators are giving you what's found in pretty much every manuscript. Are you with me? That's really important for you to know, because the worst thing that could happen this morning is that you leave thinking, wow, my Bible must... I think he's very anxious that people are going to leave thinking their Bibles are not certain. Be full of places like this. It's not. Except I'm, for the half a million places where it is. I'm not going to be back next week to preach. Some of you are like, thank goodness. No, I was, okay. Right? Okay. Now, Your Bible is let's listen to this internal argument he's going to make about the narrative flow. Sorry, I had to back it up too much. That where there's no difference in our manuscripts, it's because they preserve the original text as God inspired it and gave it to his people. All right, so that's what we might call these are the evidence of the manuscripts. Let me just briefly mention some other things that people think about when they ask about this text and whether it's original to John or not, okay? There is a little bit of a disjunction that the story creates, all right? Some people will point to things like the style of the Greek or some of the words that are used in it. I'm not going to go into that partly because I just think the story is so short that it's not entirely fair to compare it to the rest of John and think that we could make accurate deductions about who wrote it or who didn't. But you will notice at the end of chapter 7, verse 52, okay? Okay, this is where we're going to pick it up. So he's going to say 752, and, and remember, I just read it to you. It's a passage. Jesus is not present. Jesus had been there. Um, he had been speaking uh, in the temple uh, at the, 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 the Feast of, of, of Tabernacles, and this is, Jesus is not present. If you will read in your Bible, John 7, verse 45, it's the chief priests, the officers come to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and Nicodemus happens to be there. Jesus is not present. Okay. The priest, the chief priests and the Pharisees are having a conversation with Nicodemus about the people. And it just so happens to be a conversation about the law and people being accused by it and what you should do when people are accused. All right. Now, then verse 52 says, they replied, are you from Galilee too? They're saying this to Nicodemus. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then if you jump to chapter 8, verse 12, it says, again, Jesus spoke to them. Whoa, let's stop there. Do you understand that if John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is not an original part of this narrative, you have a huge disjunction, not because it's there, but if it were not there. Because if it's not there, Jesus just all of a sudden jumps into the narrative at verse 12. It only makes sense. Verse 12 only makes sense if John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is the precursor to uh, his speaking again to them. Because he appears, because in John 7, 53, after this conversation of the officers with the chief priests and the Pharisees, it says, every man went into his own house. Then you start a new day. Verse 1 of John 8, John 8. 
Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. That provides the context for John 8, 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them. If you remove John 7, 53 through 8, 11, uh, you create a huge narrative disjunction. And Peter Gurry unfortunately, seems to be completely oblivious uh, to this fact. And it flows pretty naturally because the them is the people he's just been talking to. Before. It would not flow naturally if John said 53 through 11 is not original. For that. The problem with verse 12 is if you have the story of the woman caught in adultery before it, the last thing in that story is that everybody's gone, right? It's just him and the woman. So when verse 12 says, again, Jesus spoke to them, you're going, well, who's them? And our answer to that is, if you look at the context, it's in verse 2, all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. All the people would have been his followers. There very, may well have been Pharisees. There may well have been people like Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. Um, there were people who weren't part of his disciples, but people who wanted to learn from him, who had heard about him. And then if you look at chapter 8, verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees, some scribes and Pharisees, bring the woman to him. And it is they, these Pharisees and scribes, who bring the woman to him. It is they who melt away and leave. But the people who remain there are the people in uh, chapter 8, verse 2 the people who came to him and the people whom he was teaching, and they are the ones that he continues the conversation with. If John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is not authentic, and if it's not there, it creates, again, a terrible rupture in this narrative. And so this shows not that John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is not authentic, but it shows that it is authentic, in fact. Where did they come from? All right. Now, I'm not suggesting it's impossible. OK, John can sometimes assume that we're good enough readers that we can figure out he means some other group of people or whatnot. But it's just one of those little things that makes you go, huh, given the given the manuscript evidence as we described it, then you start to look at some of those things internally and you go, yeah, this maybe suggests that it really was added later. All right. So as a summary then of what we said so far, why is this text in your Bible? The answer is because despite the evidence against it being original, it's been accepted by a lot of Christians and it's been in the English Bible from the very beginning. Not just the English Bible, it's been received by Christians all over the world, the vast majority all over the world throughout the recorded history of Christianity. And since the Reformation, it has been broadly received, not just in English Bibles, but in all printed Protestant Bibles of the Reformation, post-Reformation era until the late 19th century. Right. It's been in the English Bible for a long time. And a lot of Christians have read it as belonging in the Bible. And then again, why is it marked? Because as more manuscripts were discovered over time, the earliest evidence gave translators good reason to think this is not originally part of John's gospel. All right. The most recent in-depth study of the issue suggests that it was probably added sometime in the third century. And there are very... I think he's probably referring to Wasserman and Knust, and they make a speculation, just like some of the speculations Gurry has floated out, but there's absolutely no hard uh, and fast and sound information 
that would prove that it was a fabrication inserted into the text. And we might just as well plausibly suggest it was original. And because of controversy, there were those who attempted to remove it from the text. There's theories that I won't get into this morning as to why it was added then and then why it was added at this spot and not somewhere else. Okay, but for the sake of time, I'll let you ask me about that maybe after if you're really curious. Okay. The most important reason that it's marked is because it's easier to explain why these verses would be added than it is to explain why they'd be removed, right? I don't think it's easier to explain why uh, it was added. I think it's much easier, a much more plausible explanation is there was an attempt to remove it. And we have a first-person witness of this from Augustine from the year 400 that this was being done. I already gave you the argument from Augustine. That's, that's the best argument I've ever come across for why it would be intentionally removed. And as I said, I don't find it very... Well, he didn't address at all the whole novation controversy uh, issue. So then we're left to say, is it more convincing that a scribe would add it? And I think, yeah, it is. Why? Well, that's your subjective opinion. I disagree with you. The same reason you, you're you here this morning, because it's amazing, right? It's an amazing story, is it not? So at some point along the way, a scribe probably felt like, man, this story. So it's not inspired. It's not the word of God, but it persisted just because it was such an amazing story. It's such a wonderful story. Well, why is it you think it's an amazing story? Why is it you think it's it? it I mean, there are lots of great stories out there. There are great storytellers, but we don't take those stories and illustrations and and add them into our Bibles. Um, so. Uh, this is another uh, argument that I address in my booklet. I, I call it a wrong-headed suggestion, as there are some who are, are uh, will say, "Well, this is a it's a true story, even if it's not a biblical story, even if it's not uh, part of the Bible. It's still a true story about Jesus." And I think he's going to go down that road a little bit. Let's listen to what he says. It's too good. We got to make sure people know about this. And so he probably added it here, I think, partly because of the discussion of the law. So that, that's the basic reason that convinces many scholars today to think this is not original to John's gospel. Now, let me pause here and just say, most scholars, and I'm in agreement with them on this, most scholars read this passage and think, you know what? Even if John didn't write this, he didn't put it here in his gospel, this story has all the marks of something that really happened. This story has all the marks of something that really happened. It's not, it's not true. John didn't write it, but it has all the marks of something that, that, that tells us about Jesus. Okay. And just think about it for a minute. Doesn't this story sound like other stories you know from the Gospels? It's like a classic story of Jesus. It's, it's what I call an entrapment scene, right? Well, there are many stories, there are many accounts, historical accounts of Christ having conflict and controversy, but there's no other account that's quite like this one uh, within the gospel tradition. Where the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they have some great, difficult question for him. And here the difficulty of the question is, right, Jesus is trapped because if he says, guys, don't stone her, then it looks like he's overthrowing the law, the Old Testament law, do you see? He's challenging the Bible's authority, we would say. And then they're going to have an easy wedge to let, to use as leverage to pit him against the people and say to the people, you can't follow this guy. He's against Moses. If you follow him, you're against Moses too. 
you see. On the other hand, if Jesus says, yep, that's what the law prescribes, go ahead. Now he's got a problem with who? The Romans. Because the Gospels tell us elsewhere, at this, at this point in history, the Romans did not seem to allow the Jews to practice capital punishment. So if Jesus has them go ahead and stone her, and then the Romans come in and go, what are you doing here? They can all say, Jesus told us to. And that gives them a great argument to use with the Romans to get him in trouble. So it's a classic entrapment scene, right? In fact, that's what the text even says. They don't ask this question out of innocence. They're not looking to do what is right as far as God is concerned. They're looking to trap somebody they really don't like. You know, it's such a great account. And it just seems like it's true. Well, how about the possibility that it's such a great account and it just seems like it's true because it is true and because it is original to the Gospel of John? Somebody's getting in their way, right? Somebody who's challenging their authority. And then, of course, Jesus, amazingly, as he does when they do this, right, he gets out of the trap. And in so doing, he ends up trapping them doesn't he? Yeah, it's amazing. It's consistent with what we know about Jesus from the witness of the fourfold gospel. So I look at the story. Isn't it amazing, though, that you take all this evidence, not as proof of its authenticity, but somehow as a proof that it was invented and added spuriously? Along with many other scholars and things, I, I would bet good money this story really happened. Yeah, I bet this really happened. This is where I, I I wrote about this in my booklet, where I think this this type of argument uh, about the prick bay adulteri is actually theologically and spiritually dangerous because we have people saying this is something that really happened. It's an authentic record of something in the life and ministry of Christ, but it's not part of the scriptures. And again, I want to suggest that I think that is a, an actual, actually a dangerous thing, a dangerous approach to this passage. Why? Because what is your test for something that's not in the Bible, but you think is something that actually happened to Christ? There are a good number of apocryphal records of things that happened to Jesus. Um, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Thomas, he's mentioned the Gospel of Thomas. There are sayings of Jesus, Jesus that are there. And there have been people like Robert Funk who have argued that some of the sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas are things that he actually said, even if they're not reported or recorded in the other Gospels. Um, what's by what standard do we reject any of the sayings of the Gospel of Thomas? Um, likewise, if you if you look at some of the so-called infancy Gospels, the Proto-Evangelium of James tells us things about Mary, or the infancy Gospel of Thomas has Jesus, uh, you know, as a little boy um, knocking a friend off a roof and raising him up and taking clay and 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 shaping birds and throwing them in the air and they become birds. What's to stop someone from saying, I think that's a, that really happened, even if it's not in the gospels. Um, and uh, what about, what about Mormons who say that Jesus had a ministry in North America and it's not in the canonical gospels, but I think it really happened. It has all the marks of truth. 
in it. Well, the, the standard Christian approach has been that we only accept as that which is trustworthy, that which is recorded in the canonical gospels. Those are the things that we can say that Jesus truly did. And if we don't have that as a test or standard, then we open ourselves up to the possibility of accepting things as true about Jesus that are not recorded in the canonical gospels. And that seems to me to be a very spiritually and theologically dangerous position to take. Um, let's continue. Even if John didn't write it. Now, at this point, some bells may be ringing for some reason. Thinking, Isn't this exactly what John tells us? And the answer is yes. If you flip to the very end of John's gospel, go ahead if you, if you, have, if you have your Bible. Flip to the very last verse of John. John tells us that we should expect that Jesus did more things than he could write about. Look what he says in verse 25 of John chapter 21. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Like what? Like being entrapped. <laughs> Having a woman caught adultery brought to him. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Do you realize that Jesus did more and said more than what the Gospels could include? Well, of course, Jesus said and did more that is recorded. The Gospels are, are selective recordings of the things Jesus said and did. But verse 25, the closing verse of John, is not a verse that could be used as a justification for accepting apocryphal reports of things that Jesus said and did as authentic. Otherwise, we would and would be opening the door to the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter and uh, the infancy Gospel of Thomas and the Proto-Evangelium of James and perhaps even the Book of Mormon. I think the, the, the verse that should be laid alongside of John 21, verse 25, would be John 20, verse 31, where it says, but these are written, the things in the Gospel of John, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might, ha ye might have life through his name. Sorry, I want to read verse 30 ahead of that. Verse 30, John 20, verse 30, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So there's an acknowledgement that Jesus, yes, he did many things that were not written in this book. But these are written. The things in this book are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. It's the things that are written in this book that the Christian is to receive and believe. And so if John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is not authentic and not original to this book, it would not be counted among the things that are written here, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Um, let's listen to just a little bit more. I think we're almost uh, finally at the end. Right? He had to have. At best, they give, us, they give us three years of his life. And if you read through the gospel, it takes you less than three years. Right? Simple math. They had to leave things out, all right? 
You might ask, well, why did they leave this one out? I don't know. Who could, I can't say. John didn't tell us that. But that suggests that this may really have happened, and somebody at some point thought we want to include that. Now, at this point, we have to ask the question, what do we as Christians today do with this? If this passage has been in our Bibles for so long, and many Christians have read it as scriptures, how should we read it today? Should we follow the lead of some and treat it like the rest of scripture? In which case, I would have been here this morning. <laughs> You're going, well, he's probably not going to say that. Or are we obligated by our knowledge of better evidence to conclude that it isn't scripture and so doesn't belong in the Bible? And I just need to tell you this morning, I know good thinkers who I respect who take different views on this. Okay? There are good arguments for each of these cases. So I'm just going to cut to the chase and say, here's my own view. My view is that as much as we can, I'd like to honor both. Both the manuscript evidence that we have, that God has given us, I think we have an obligation to take it seriously and be faithful in interpreting it, and I think that evidence suggests it's not original to John. But on the other hand, I do want to show deference and respect to the church and the fact that many Christians have read this passage as Scripture. So here's my, here's my suggestion to us. that The best way we can do this to respect both of these is by not treating it as Scripture, but still letting it illustrate for us truths that we know about Jesus from the rest of Scripture. Does that make sense? All right, I'm going to stop there. So he sums up in the end by saying, I want to I want to split the difference. I want to have a foot in both worlds. I want to say it's not original, but it's an illustration of things that are true about Jesus. And again, I think this is theologically problematic. Um, when a, when a, a Christian uh, pastor goes to the pulpit he does not take the works of Shakespeare. He, he does not take um, Calvin's Institutes and, 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 and speak from them, read them, and then preach them. He reads the scriptures, and he preaches from the scriptures. There was actually, um, when, when uh, Gurry tweeted out this sermon, uh, someone uh, put a comment on and they asked, why would you preach a non-biblical text at all? Do you do this with other apocryphal texts? Now, this was a person who, who, who doesn't accept the authenticity of John 7, 53 through 811. And he says, he's basically saying, if you don't believe this is true, why are you preaching this? And that's kind of the question I have, too. Do you do that with other apocryphal texts? Would, would you go into the pulpit and 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 take the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, would you uh, would you take some other passage that's not in the Bible? If you think it's true, you think that's worth foisting upon the congregation and 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 reading it from the pulpit and speaking from it. I mean, does this mean you would take um, uh, some of the deuterocanonical books from the Old Testament? Are you going to take um, the book of Judith and are you going to read it and are you going to preach from that? Do you do this with other apocryphal works that you think aren't part of Scripture? The, the pulpit is for preaching and proclaiming the inspired and preserved Scriptures as they point to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. If you really don't think this is Scripture, then please have the integrity to remove it from your Bible, physically remove it. We don't have any, we, we don't, when we have our Bibles, we don't staple 
illustrations behind the book of Revelation and say, but it, it, this is really good. You know, it's really remarkable. It's a really interesting story. I really think it, and it, it, it illustrates the life of Jesus. We only accept uh, as part of scripture that which is God-breathed, that which is inspired, and that which God has preserved. I think we can, with all confidence, preach John 7, 53 through 8, 11 as the word of God. And uh, if you've got questions about that, I would encourage you to get a hold of this little booklet that I've written, read it. And um, and I think uh, uh, rather than uh, cast doubts in the minds of uh, the lambs that are out there listening, I think we ought to be able to stand forth and speak with confidence, uh, with, with clarity, uh, with sincerity, with humility, uh, from the word of God. And I think John 7, 53 through 8, 11 is part of the word of God. It is part of the scriptures that God has inspired and it is part of the scriptures that God has kept pure in all ages. But with that, I'm going to bring this long review to an end. Hope this has been helpful, edifying to those who are listening. I'll look forward to speaking, speaking to you in the next edition of Word Magazine. Till then, take care and God bless.